did it. If you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of John, chapter 19. In just a moment, we'll be beginning reading at the very tail end of verse 16, and we'll be reading through verse 42, a longer section of Scripture this morning. We have entered into the Advent season, as you probably noticed, by the decorations that are up and the lighting of an Advent candle and the fact that we've already told you that we've entered into the Advent season this morning. So if you've been paying attention, you know that we are firmly there. We are longing for the day in which the Advent of our Lord comes again, the second Advent, the second coming of our Lord. But in the meantime, we are happy to celebrate the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to be an incarnate man with us, human as he has come to save human beings. And it occurred to me this week in, in some of the devotions my family is doing, how closely connected the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is in much Christian art and in much Christian thought, uh, and how closely it is connected to his death. So we are reading through a devotional which is sort of uh, pointed at Handel's Messiah, and uh, we, we listen to part of the 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 long two-and-a-half-hour opus that is the Messiah, and we, we read the scriptures that are associated with that and, uh, and talk about what it means. But if anyone has ever listened to the Messiah before, you know that that piece of music is geared not just toward Christmas, although if you listen to it, it's likely that you listen to it at Christmas time. If you uh, know anything about it, you know that many people um, attend concerts and things that, that have this as part of their Christmas celebration. But the majority of that two-and-a-half-hour music is bent not on the advent of our Lord Jesus Christ, but on his passion and his resurrection from the dead. This is where the famous Hallelujah Chorus comes from. It does not come from Christmas, but it comes from his resurrection. This work is not alone, however, in combining these two ideas of the, the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ with his death and resurrection. You find it in a lot of paintings around Christmas time when they put Jesus Christ in a cradle or in the manger. They have in the background or as a shadow somewhere a sign of the cross. This is even true in something like Joy to the World, a very famous Christmas hymn, which is better understood as an Easter hymn. But we can sing it at both because we think of both being connected together. Even this morning as we read through Matthew's opening chapter, we heard a line that repeats in those opening chapter that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Matthew is keen to show that the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is being sent by the Father and the events that surround his birth and his growing up happen to fulfill scripture. Whether it's the naming of Jesus, whether it's where he was born, whether it's the journey to Egypt, even Herod killing the children in Bethlehem, all of this happened to fulfill and to bring to completion Scripture. It's not by accident, then, that as we have four Gospels, the first Gospel starts by saying the coming of Jesus was to fulfill Scripture, and our last Gospel, the Gospel of John, shows that his death and resurrection are there in order to fulfill Scripture. They have the same emphasis in the beginning and the end. His entire life has come to be the completion and the culmination of all of God's revelation to us. Today we're going to look at the many ways in which John indicates consciously and I think sometimes probably unconsciously how Jesus fulfills all of Scripture. 
And I was warned as a young preacher that I was never supposed to tell people where we were going, but just take them there. But I think it's important this morning that you know where we're going because this is going to be a multi-part journey and it's kind of a long one. So as I was working through this this week, I realized that I had far too much information here uh, to present, especially with communion going on this morning. Uh, The 15 points that basically I had, I said I need to cut those down, Um, but instead of just eliminating some of them, um, what we're going to do is do part one and part two. So we're only going to get part way through kind of a sermon. It's going to be a little bit incomplete this morning. Uh, I've never actually done that before, but um, it became necessary for the sake of you. Um, You can thank me later after this 50-minute sermon. You're going to say, hey, I am so happy that it was 50 minutes, and you'll never have said that ever again. What we want to do is then consider the type of fulfillment that Jesus has, or that John shows Jesus doing, here in the end of John 19. There are three different types of fulfillment um, that I have have kind of made up in my own categories for us. The first is called obvious fulfillment. And it's obvious because John tells us this happened to fulfill Scripture. So we don't have to guess, we don't have to wonder, it's there, John tells us. The second is going to be allusional. That means John is alluding, I think, or whether consciously or unconsciously, he is, he is pointing at some other passage of Scripture in which Jesus seems to be fulfilling something important in Scripture. The word echo is often used, and it, it, it is reminiscent of the fact that when you hear something, it sounds like something else. And so when we read through this passage, there are a lot of things happening to Jesus or that Jesus says or that that other people do that aren't directly quoted as John saying this happened to fulfill scripture. But man, it sounds a lot like another piece of scripture. And so we want to cover that because I think that this is also how Jesus fulfills scripture. These are harder to prove. And sometimes I'm going to say these things. I'm going to give you a list of them, uh, half of them today and half of them next week, and you're going to say to some of those, that sounds true. I I can see where that would actually be something that John was hoping to point out. And sometimes you're going to look at those and say, yeah, it's not. That's not there. I don't see it. And that's fine. That's fine. But all of Scripture is written by God, and all of Scripture is to be prodded and plotted to see where it is that God is revealing to us how Jesus fulfills everything that he has said. And partly, these illusions help us do that. The last thing that we're not going to even cover today is thematic fulfillment. And these are things that are themes that kind of run through Scripture that we see kind of culminating in the work of Jesus Christ here. There's not really a a scripture to point to, but nevertheless, I I believe that there is some sort of fulfillment there. Um, Because we we have uh, somewhat limited time, we're going to flip through these things very quickly, so I wanted to remind you that we we try to get the podcast up almost immediately uh, after, if you need to look at that, and then tomorrow we'll have the sermon posted online, so if you miss something, hopefully you can find the information there, and and we will uh, catch you up on it. In order to uh, get to our sermon, though, we should read from Scripture. So, Follow with me and read with me as we read from John 19, beginning in the end of verse 16. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, 
what I've written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that it was all now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes, cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the inerrant and infallible word of our God. As we consider this passage today, let us consider first Jesus' obvious fulfillment of Scripture. John mentions three different times that there is Scripture being fulfilled in events that are taking place here. First, in verse 24, with the casting of lots for the clothing of Jesus Christ. The soldiers making meager ends and getting paid for some of their work, get to take the clothes of those who were hung on crosses and get to keep them for themselves, presumably either for themselves or to sell. There are likely four soldiers in all because there are four different pieces of clothing, including the tunic, which was not to be cut, a belt, sandals, and likely a head covering. It seems to be kind of standard practice amongst the Jews, or excuse me, amongst the Romans of the day when there was a crucifixion. Yet, This is a fulfillment of scripture, John says. This particular scripture comes from Psalm 22, which is famous 
in the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, in Matthew and Mark, for Jesus hangs on the cross and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the very first line of that psalm. Psalm 22 is a psalm that is written by David. And it is, for all accounts and purposes, in David's life, a very exaggerated psalm. David was under sort of extreme pressure and very, very cast down when he wrote it. The psalm itself doesn't allow us to know exactly when David wrote it or what the events were that were going on in David's life that caused him to want to write it. But David clearly feels cut off from God and man. In the psalm, unrighteous people are doing unrighteous things. And God apparently is not stopping them. Indeed, this is the very point of the first line. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you allowing evil men to walk forward with their evil purposes? Why hasn't God interceded? But in the end, David is very clear that he will look upon the house of the Lord again, that he will declare God's faithfulness to his brothers. And in this we find our passage from Psalm 22, verse 18. We'll read from 14 to 22. David writes, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Here, it is quite clear that Jesus, in some way, shape, or form, literally has this fulfilled of him. It is unlikely that David had other people literally casting lots for him. Maybe they, they found clothing of his and they decided to, to kind of divide it up among them. But what it means is that he was utterly devoid of help. He was utterly cut off in the land of the living. People hated him and wanted his life to be gone. And yet it is fulfilled in the reality of what Jesus, Jesus has happened to him. It's important to realize that David is being quite exaggerated here with his language. It is unlikely that he could count all of his bones. It is unlikely that he was literally pierced in his hands and feet. And yet we know that these things much more likely happened to Jesus. God often does this. This is part of fulfillment. Fulfillment of scripture, fulfillment of prophecy does not always happen because God says to a prophet, this thing is going to happen, announce it beforehand. But oftentimes it happens simply because the New Testament tells us what is going to happen and then it happens in a different form. What we mean by that is David has life occur to him. There's suffering, there's pain, and there's sorrow. The New Testament understands that what happens to David is simply a foreshadowing of what will happen in even more real terms to Jesus. David feels this suffering. He feels like his heart is melting within him. He feels like all of his bones are out of joint. Jesus knows that pain in a much more real sense than David ever did. This brings us then directly to Psalm 69 and verse 28. 
which again is a psalm of David. He thirsts and he drinks and he asks for wine. Or he says, I thirst in order to be given wine. It could be that it comes from Psalm 22. My, stung, my tongue sticks to my mouth is one of the things that, that some scholars think this comes from, but it's probably more from Psalm 69, verses 19 through 21, where David, again, writes this, You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Jesus sought to fulfill this himself. I think self-consciously sought to fulfill this himself. This is the whole reason why he said, I thirst, was so that they would give him what he knew was going to be sour wine, so that this would indeed be fulfilled. It is fulfilled literally in him. But it is also likely that he consciously quoted it to give us insight into his own suffering. Not simply to say, well, that's another scripture that I've fulfilled. You can check that one off. But so that in reading Psalm 69, we would know something of how he suffers. There is no one to comfort him. He is cut off from all. He came to his own and his own did not receive him and his own did not know him. This and the last scripture, both from David, both show a reaching out to God for help, eventually knowing that he would find it, but not before he died, knowing that all of humanity, all men, have completely abandoned Jesus in his time of need. Again, I think it is worth noting that the events and sorrows of David's life, even with these grand and deep metaphors that he used to express himself in his, in his anguish before God, were designed by God to show us something of what Jesus' suffering would indeed be like. I think there's something to be said for the reality of our suffering and how we experience it and what the Bible is saying about David and Jesus. We often inflate our suffering when we go through it. Even when it's not that bad, we think that it's horrible. And David likely thought that his suffering, as bad as it was, and indeed it was bad, was wretched, but it was not as wretched as the suffering that Jesus would go through. We know of Nothing of the suffering from the narrative portions of David's life that it suffers like this. Yet his outpouring is so exaggerated. And what God is saying is, David, you feel this way, but my son will truly know that pain. This leads us up to his death and the piercing of Jesus' side, which is the third scripture quotation. In verses 36 and 37, they do not break his bones, they do pierce his side. It is likely that this is a, a quotation that is being brought from Exodus 12 and Numbers 9 about the Passover lamb. When the Jews were to eat the Passover lamb, or all Israelites were to eat the Passover lamb, they were to kill it, but they were never to break its bones. In Exodus 12, 46, it shall be in, eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. In Numbers 9, 12, they shall leave none of it until morning, nor break any of its bones. According to all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. Both are especially important here because Jesus is clearly being demonstrated and shown to be the Passover lamb. And just like that lamb, he has no broken bones. Now, there's a reason why they would break the bones of people. They would break the bones because of the nature of crucifixion. It expediated their death. If these men hung on a cross past 6 p.m. on that Friday, the Sabbath would begin. 
And if the Sabbath began and they were still alive, if they died during the Sabbath, they were not allowed to be taken down off that cross. The Jews could not become ceremonially unclean and touch a dead body, plus they probably considered it work. This would allow their bodies to be desecrated and would open it up to be defiled by birds and other animals who came to pick at it. Family members would have been incredibly distraught by that, as you can imagine. And so the Jews often ask, on this day in particular, that bones be broken. The reason why is because of the way in which people died on the cross. It is a brutal, torturous death. I will let D.A. Carson explain most of it. He writes, In the ancient world, this most terrible of punishments is always associated with shame and horror. It was so brutal that no Roman citizen could be crucified without the sanction of the emperor. Stripped naked and beaten to a pulpy weakness, the victim could hang in the hot sun for hours or even days. To breathe, it was necessary to push with the legs and to pull with the arms to keep the chest cavity open and functioning. Terrible muscle spasm racked the entire body, but since collapse meant asphyxiation, the strain went on and on. This is also why the seducula, the prolonged, prolonged life in agony, that, that is simply a, a little wooden piece that they put on the cross, very, very small, that you almost sat on. And the purpose of it was to give you not a huge amount of rest, but a little bit of rest. And that little bit of rest seems like it's a nice thing, but it actually just prolongs the agony of death. You just keep living on and on. Your human body can't stand asphyxiation. So even as your muscles are past the point of wanting to do anything, even as, as you are exhausted beyond all power, you keep pulling, you keep pushing, even as there, there are spikes in your hands and in your feet so that you can breathe again. Breaking of the legs means you can't do that anymore. It brings on death very rapidly. It's important to realize that the breaking of legs then was an act of mercy. And it's hard to realize that because we don't ever think that breaking of legs is a merciful thing. But it was an act of mercy that Jesus was not given. He died breathing his last breath on the cross. He died asphyxiated as he couldn't pull himself anymore. He could not push himself anymore. This particular passage might also be a reference to Psalm 34, 19 and 20, where the psalmist writes, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps, his, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Jesus is the Passover lamb who suffers and dies, who bleeds, but he does not break any bones. The second passage of quotation here is from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. When the Lord is pierced on the cross, the quotation that John sees fulfilled here is, in those verses from Zechariah, I will pour out on the house of David and in the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that, and notice the wording of this from the Lord, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. They will look and they will see the Lord and they will look and see the one whom they have pierced. What do all of these things point toward? Whether it's a quotation from David or a quotation about the Passover or a quotation from Zechariah, what do all these things point toward? From David, it's clear that Jesus' sacrifice is pictured in the depth and the immensity of its pain. He suffers alone as no king should. 
even while he is in the midst of his people. The world has turned on him completely and fully, and yet, and yet, he is faithful. From the Passover, we realize that Jesus is sacrificed so that we might escape the curse that is to rain down upon all who live in the land. Just as in Egypt, the curse was to come upon all people, whether they were Egyptian or they were Hebrew. It didn't matter. So long as you lived in the land and you did not have the blood applied to the doorpost and the lentils, that angel would come for your firstborn. The curse would be at your doorstep. But with the application of that blood, he passes over you. And so it is with us. That Jesus, who dies alone in incredible agony and suffering, does so so that the spirit of death and curse might pass over us and deliver us even from oppression. And in Zechariah, that God himself suffers in the person of Jesus. He doesn't sit loftily above the suffering of the world. He doesn't hand off our salvation to someone else for them to accomplish, but rather he takes an active hand both in our salvation and the suffering that is necessary to achieve it. God Almighty becomes a man and in the person of Jesus Christ suffers death. He does so out of his love for you so that you might see his glory. If you just read through the book of John, you might get the picture of a man who suffers and dies. These quotations are here to fill that picture out, to show you the immense suffering that Jesus went through, to show you why he suffered in his love for you and who he truly was as he suffered for you. These are the things that John quotes consciously. But these are not the only things that we find here. There are allusions to the fulfillment of Scripture throughout this passage. We will look at these briefly and quickly. Jesus' allusional fulfillment of Scripture begins in verse 17, where he bears wood for his own sacrifice. It is a reminder and an echo of Genesis 22, where Isaac himself, after Abraham has told you are to take your son, your only son, your beloved son, and you are to take him up on a mountain and you're to sacrifice him, Isaac himself bears the wood that he will take to that place. He carries the wood himself. Abraham is going to sacrifice him, not expecting a replacement, but knowing that this is the son. Not, if I kill this son, there will be another son of promise. No, this is the son of promise. If I kill this son, God will raise him from the dead. Hebrews 11 says this, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, Abraham considered, that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Jesus does this all the more. Jesus takes that cross member on his back knowing that he is not going to have the mercy of God placed upon him, but the agony and the wrath of God placed upon him. That knife would not be held back and a ram would not be found in a thicket, but it would fall upon him for he himself would make it fall upon him. What Isaac could not do, Jesus would do. Secondly, the fact that Jesus is cursed and hanged on a tree is reminiscent of Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain on the, all night on the tree, but you shall bury him in the same day. For a hanged man 
is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Scripture is clear. Those who hang on a tree are cursed. Jesus, by hanging on that piece of wood, by crucifixion, he could have been killed in any of a number of ways. The Jews could have stoned him. They could have run him through. There were a number of ways to kill people, but he was mounted on a piece of wood, and he was hung from it. And Scripture says he was accursed because of it. This is precisely the language that Paul picks up on in Galatians 3. Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. He is accursed for us because he hangs on the tree. Third, in verse 18, he is crucified with two criminals, reminiscent again of Isaiah 53, verse 12. There we read, I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. These criminals who deserve death are crucified with Jesus. They are insurrectionists like Barabbas. In Luke 23, they frankly admit that they deserve to be crucified. One of the criminals there says, We are indeed crucified justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. But just as Sesame Street says, one of these things is not like the other. Jesus was not a criminal. But he was numbered with them. He was counted with them. The language that is used there is incredibly interesting in the book of Isaiah. It is the same word that we read of in Abraham that he was declared righteousness. Or he had righteousness declared to him. It was counted to him or reckoned to him as righteousness. Jesus has sin reckoned to him. He is numbered with the sinners. We get righteousness reckoned to us. The entire passage of Isaiah 53, which we amazingly haven't talked about before, is a stunningly accurate picture of what it must be to be crucified. In its pain and in its agony, it is a harrowing picture of the suffering that Jesus would go through. 700 years before Jesus would go to the cross. The entirety of the episode here of the crucifixion might be one large depiction of what it was that Jesus was to suffer from Isaiah 53. Back in John 18.32, as the Jews went to Pilate, they asked Pilate for the right to kill him. Back in 18.32, John says that this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Again, the Jews had no problem picking up stones and stoning people. But Jesus somehow knew that that was not his fate. His fate was on a cross. Maybe that was by divine prerogative. Maybe it was because he was there when the Father made the plans before the foundation of the world and he knew them. And he knew them simply in his divine nature. But it could also be that Jesus, as a human man, reading Psalm or or reading Isaiah 53, read it and said, there's only one thing that that could be in this world, and that is crucifixion. Jesus, although innocent, is considered sinful and suffers the penalty for our sin. He is numbered among the transgressors. We are numbered among the righteous.
Fourthly, he is proclaimed as king to the nations. Verse 22, the very sign that Pilate makes, that sign that he makes is not in one language. It's not simply in Greek, but it is in Greek, in Latin, and in Aramaic so that everyone would know, everyone can read, and everyone can see that Jesus Christ is the king of the Jews. Psalm 96.10 says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Now, Pilate writes this sign and he puts it over Jesus and he refuses to change it solely out of spite because he dislikes the Jews and he wants to stick it to the Jews. But in wanting to stick it to the Jews, he also proclaims something very important to the nations that this is the king of the Jews. He is the king of the entire world and he reigns. Interestingly, there is a perversion of this text somewhere along the lines. Before you get to you know, AD 0 or 30 AD or whenever Jesus dies, and in the second century, people picked up a Greek text that has a reading that doesn't say the Lord reigns, but it says rather the Lord reigns from the tree. People in the second century made much out of this, including Justin. Jesus Christ does indeed reign here. He reigns over all of the people even as it is pronounced out. Psalm 2, 8 through 12, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Even on the cross, Jesus reigns as king of the Jews. Lastly, this morning, we find in verses 26 and 27 a fulfillment of the fifth commandment, which simply says this in Exodus 20:12: Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. In going to the cross, he is quite obviously honoring his father, not just his earthly father, but he is honoring his heavenly father, doing all that the father has called him to do, even to the point of death and death on a cross. He is obedient to the end, but he also honors his mother. It's not a small thing. When we go through suffering and pain, when we just lack sleep, we find a ready-made excuse for every short word that we have with somebody. I'm sorry, I was angry. I didn't get a lot of sleep last night. Jesus is suffering the agony of death, and he is right on the verge of dying here. And seeing his mom in a very touching episode, but a very important episode, says, I have prepared somebody to take care of you, mom. He has every reason to be overly concerned with what is happening to him with pain that we cannot imagine coursing through his body, he still seeks to honor his mother and to make sure that she is taken care of. That is, as Paul famously notes, the, only, the first commandment that comes with a promise that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Indeed, because Jesus is one who honors his father and his mother, he will be raised to newness of life again, and he will reign over the land forever and ever and ever. In all of this, we're only halfway through, but we do have to come to an end. 
But there are things in here to dwell and to think through. I want to mention just a couple of things as we come to an end. First, God has fashioned all of history, and especially his specially recorded history, to help us understand what Jesus has done. The history of the Old Testament doesn't just show random events that display God's faithfulness. It does that. God is incredibly faithful to his people. But those pictures of faithfulness are not there simply for their own sake. They are a picture that says, if you think that I'm being faithful here, just you wait. They are pictures to give us understanding of God's faithfulness, to give us helpful guides to how God is faithful. But ultimately, his faithfulness is seen completed and full in the cross of Jesus Christ. This also helps to explain the difficulties that the people of the Old Testament encounter, especially somebody like David. Saul is wicked and doesn't do what God commands. God says, I'm going to remove the kingdom from you. But for the remainder of the book of 1 Samuel, you know who the king is? Samuel goes and he anoints David. Do you know who the king is? Fifteen some odd years, who is the king? It's not David. He's anointed as king. He's promised the kingship. He's promised that Saul will be removed. Saul is never removed until he dies. Why? So that David could suffer. And that, holy, to point to Jesus. The whole of the Old Testament points at Jesus Not just toward his birth, as Matthew says repeatedly, these events that surround the birth and the raising of our Lord Jesus Christ, but also to his death. From the Pentateuch to the Psalms, from the histories and the narratives, all the way through the prophecies, all of it is culminated in the work of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, all that he accomplishes and does, fulfills and summarizes and completes all of the Old Testament. And thus, friends, you have all the reason in the world to trust our Lord Jesus Christ. Always. During time when things are going well, we are told that we must give even more of ourselves to good things. We can trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to be able to do such. During times of trial, when hope is dimmed or lost, you can trust in Jesus. In times of uncertainty, when you don't know where you're going or how you're going to get where you need to be, you can trust in Jesus. In times of difficulty, when all of the world is poised against you, you can trust in Jesus. Times of stress, when you have no idea if you can hang on a moment more, you can trust in Jesus. During times of testing, during times of temptation, when your sin pulls you, you can trust in him. During times of conviction, when your sin is no longer pulled on you, but you have given in, you can trust in him. And all these things, Jesus shows that he is faithful. Because it's during this time of year that we speak about God sending a helpless child into a world that is filled with evil and wretched men who from his very birth seek to end his life. His plan of salvation, God the Father being carried out in God the Son, was not to be done through human might and strength. But from the beginning, it was to use a strategy that humans would mock and jeer at. It was to use humility and submission. Jesus doesn't come as a mighty warrior from the clouds. He comes as a child. He doesn't die as a mighty king reigning over his people in the tumult of battle. 
He dies alone on a cross. The same Savior who was born in weakness and humility dies in weakness and humility, and in doing so, fulfills all of God's designs, brings to completion all of God's signs pointing to his own work, and shows himself to be a strong and valiant Savior and a mighty King. This, friends, is why we sing of his birth and why we sing of his death. For Mary's boy was born that he might die. Let us sing of that great truth this morning. But let us pray first. Father, we are thankful for the grace given through your Son, sent to die in our stead, to show himself the sacrificial lamb and the mighty king. Let the peoples rage. Let them plot in vain. Yet we know that out of, lion, out of Judah comes a lion, a fierce protector of his people, who has already conquered for them. For this we praise you, we worship you, we honor you, we exalt you for your great name and for the good of your people we pray these things. Amen. If you would, stand and sing with us our hymn of response, Exalt in the Savior's birth. <laughs>